This is The Guardian. Today, we're at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool to hear what their big vision is. But first, their promises to sort out the current economic crisis. Mr. Speaker, we're at the beginning of a new era. And as we contemplate, and as we contemplate. Last week, the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, made a big announcement that from April, he'd be cutting taxes. In fact, it'd be the largest package of tax cuts in 50 years. From April the 23rd, we will have a, high, a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. This will simplify the tax system. He promised that cutting taxes in this way would get the economy growing. But the way the financial markets reacted was disastrous. Now, the British pound has fallen to its lowest level ever against the US dollar. In early Asia trade, sterling fell to $1. After less than a month in power, Liz Truss's government had just caused a currency crisis. To the rest of the world, it seemed unbelievable. I think the UK is behaving a bit like an emerging market turning itself into a submerging market. They'd added another strain to the economy at a time when millions of people across the UK are struggling to even pay for their basic needs. And as the country was looking for answers, the Chancellor seemed to have none. Chancellor, what are you going to do about the turmoil on the markets this morning, sir? I'm not going to make any comment now. What about the city? To the Labour Party, this crisis presents an opportunity. They've been out of power for 12 years now, but here at their annual conference in Liverpool, it's felt like the confidence of members is high. It's amazing. I've never felt so hopeful in my life. I just feel like we are going to win. There seems to be a real positive energy, like we're on the verge of a great victory. I've been coming for many years. I've never felt quite this buzz. And people are saying quietly, you're going to win. For the party's leader, Keir Starmer, it's a critical moment to prove that he has a better vision for the country and to present himself as the prime minister in waiting. The government has lost control of the British economy. And for what? Not for you, not for working people. The only way to stop this is with a Labour government. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, what's Labour's vision to lead Britain out of crisis? Peter Walker, you're a political correspondent for The Guardian and you've been here in Liverpool this week where Keir Starmer has been setting out his vision for the Labour Party. But what people have been really talking about more than anything is the crisis in the economy, the problems that have been caused by the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget, which came out on Friday. Tell me about that. Well, this was the fiscal statement a budget which is not a budget, that surprised quite a lot of people. I mean, uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have always said they wanted to cut taxes. 
and they did and they did a couple of things they said they were going to do like saying they would not increase corporation tax as planned that they'd reverse the cut to national insurance and also lots of people expected a 1p cut in income tax but they kind of went further they also got rid of the top 45p rate of uh, income tax which surprised a lot of people. I mean, there's one report that said someone in the public gallery, when that was announced in Parliament, could hear a Tory MP going, Jesus Christ, because they genuinely didn't expect it. Their theory, which they've believed in for a long time, is this idea that if you have a low-tax, low-regulation economy, then it frees up people to take risks. And you have people who think, well, if I set up my own company, I won't pay the 45p rate on income tax if I earn over £150,000. And they promised that the economy, after you know, a decade or so of slow growth will grow. They want to grow it to 2.5% a year, if not more. And the idea is just to give the economy a big kick in the bum and get it going as quickly as possible. This was always going to be a bit risky because that kind of tax cutting to grow the economy has got an economic background to it, but people tend to not do it during a period where there's inflationary pressure and where there's interest rate pressure. So you have this thing of the government trying to kickstart the economy, and as people keep on saying, the Bank of England trying to keep the foot on the brake. And with this combination, financial markets got spooked. Well, it looks like the markets are still reeling after the new Chancellor announced huge tax cuts at the end of last week. Today, the pound plunged to its lowest value ever. It's open. The pound's fall follows a frosty reception by the markets to the British government's announcement last week. It will cut taxes and hugely increase... And the problem is also that the measures they've introduced disproportionately benefit the better off. Tax cuts tend to, because if you earn more, you pay more tax, but particularly getting rid of the 45p rate of income tax, that literally only benefits people who earn £150,000 or more a year, which is, again, literally the 1%. So it's kind of this economic laboratory experiment that's been visited on the country. And there's a lot of people who are kind of scratching their heads thinking, what are they doing? Because it defies the rules of political logic. And one of the strange things about the Labour conference is that, you know, it starts on Saturday, most people arrive Saturday night into Sunday. And on Sunday evening, everyone was basically looking at their phones, seeing what the pound was doing. And that coloured everything, because you've got a full-blown fiscal monetary crisis going on. I mean, one of my colleagues uh, yesterday said she was at Labour conference the whole day and hadn't written a single thing about the Labour Party. Wow. She'd just been writing about the currency crisis, speaking to Tory MPs, seeing how they felt. And to one extent, if you're in opposition, it's quite annoying because you want to get a chance to get your ideas out there. But a big part of their narrative this week is, you know, the government is not very good. And that certainly helps burnish that story. So the Chancellor's announced these tax cuts that have panicked investors that, as you say, are likely only to benefit the very richest in our society. The pound fell to a record low against the dollar. Banks have stopped offering certain types of mortgages as well. How have people here at the conference been reacting, hearing that news, all of that happening outside these walls? Well, there's, there's a mixture to it. Some of it is the kind of Labour MPs and Labour front benches who are basically, you know, they're asking us, do you know why they're doing this? Because we, we've got no idea. And it's this kind of uh, aghastness of this is really weird. But also this realisation that, I mean, it's, 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 it's a twin thing because, you know, these are MPs, they, they see the effect on the communities that they serve and they're genuinely worried. They're worried that this is going to cause a lot of trouble. So they're split between this worry that is going to make things for the country much worse. And they can't help realising this is a big political uh, opportunity because when 
Keir Starmer was facing Boris Johnson, it was all about character. And Starmer was arguably not that comfortable with that, you know, about having to always make the point that uh, Johnson couldn't be trusted, he was a liar and things like that. Whereas with trust, it's all about this ideological split. And the ideological split has probably not been bigger since the Margaret Thatcher, Michael Foote era. It's that start. So that's what's been going on outside the walls of this conference hall. The Labour leader, Keir Starmer, took to the stage to lay out his plans for the Labour Party. What were the tasks ahead of him? I think you could boil it down to two, probably. He had one of which was to basically critique the government and make people believe that they're you know, not doing a great job, which in this context is probably quite straightforward. But then he also had this thing which... which Arguably, some Labour MPs and even shadow ministers have been waiting for him to do for quite some time, which is set out what Labour's alternative vision is. It's less about what the specific policies are, because, you know, they've got a lot of policies and have announced quite a few over the years. It's what is the overriding vision. If you were to set out Labour's mission in, like, five words or fewer, what would it be? And that's what he had to do. And the second task is always much, much more difficult. So how did he fare on that first task then? What were the kind of spiky lines about Truss's government that stood out to you from his speech? I mean, it was really interesting. She's only been in power for three weeks, but like the first 20 minutes of the speech, more or less, was attacking uh, her. I mean, he was very keen to stress the fact that this is kind of 12 years of Conservative government because there is this ambition. Whenever the Tories change leader, they did it with Boris Johnson and with Liz Truss, to say, oh, you know, the management's all brand new, don't worry about the previous years. So he wanted to kind of put it into this continuum of Tory rule. So he was talking about the degradation of public services. The mess they've made of our public services. Strong public services are the foundation of a successful economy. Always. In terms of nice lines, there was one bit where he referred to the old Conservative criticism of the uh, Blair Brown government not fixing the roof when the sun was uh, shining. They used to lecture us about fixing the roof when the sun was shining. But take a look around Britain. They haven't just failed to fix the roof. They've ripped out the foundations, smashed through the windows, and now they've blown the doors off for good measure. And there was also another one. The Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has said a lot of quite kind of pointed things over the years. And he quoted, uh, Starmer quoted Kwarteng as going on about a vicious cycle of stagnation. Their record is appalling. The worst decade of growth in two centuries. Or, as the Chancellor puts it, a vicious cycle of stagnation. And I got quite a good laugh. And from memory, that got a standing ovation too. There were, I counted 13 throughout the speech. People were enthused. You know, it's an exciting moment. So what were people enthused about then? You talked about the two tasks. One, sticking the knife into the current government, and two, setting out what Starmer's vision is. What were his key ideas? His key ideas were in part ones he's referred to before which has set out himself as a person a potential prime minister to the british public so he was going on about how he has this empathy with people who have grown up wanting aspiration from poorer circumstances i remember when our phone was cut off because we couldn't pay the bill how hard it was to make ends meet but there's something else i remember about being working class in the 1970s hope Not a grandiose, utopian dream kind of hope. A hope that was ordinary. And he had this quite long section which got a good reaction. In Grimsby a few months ago, 
I was really struck by a woman I met. She said something which was really simple. I don't just want to survive, I want to live. As I got back on the train, that phrase went round and round in my head. And, I don't just you know, he says, survive. you know, that's our mission. People don't want to live, they want to thrive, which, which sounds quite Meghan Markle-ish. I think you might be one of uh, her lines. I don't think he deliberately took it from her. It was quite Instagrammable, that, wasn't it? it was a bit of a wellness speech. But it's, it's a good point, because a lot of people are just feeling they have to kind of struggle with bills every month. They get on trains which don't work. They wait six months for a doctor's appointment. And it's a bit of a slog through treacle, and they want life to be slightly easier. So I think that's quite resonant. In policy terms, the only kind of rabbit out the hat, such as it was, he was slightly briefed, was this idea of great British uh, energy. And because it is right for jobs, because it is right for growth, because it is right for energy independence from tyrants like Putin, then yes, conference, great British energy will be publicly owned. Which is a green sustainable energy firm which will be publicly owned, which obviously tickles the preferences of the Labour conference. And it ties into this wider idea of an economic recovery based on green energy, but things like insulating homes and stuff like that. He was going on quite a lot about how it was a shame that you know, not only energy firms are owned by foreign companies like the French and the Chinese, but also the fact that even the infrastructure, like wind turbines, are built in different places. He wants to bring that all uh, here. And uh, the Liz Truss-Quasi-Quateng approach is things like fracking, more North Sea oil, getting the energy supply uh, higher. But no one quite understands why they don't want to do an uh, insulation drive, because that's quite quick and works very well. And that's one of the kind of big labour uh, offerings. And again, Starmer had this long anecdote about going to someone's house that had been newly uh, insulated. I went in January. It was freezing cold. I was invited in. The house was warm. The energy bills next to nothing. And the tenants were grinning from ear to ear. And why not? Over a grand off your winter fuel bill. What's not to like? And again, this is an image that people can get very easily. I'm living in a drafty house. Wouldn't it be nice to pay less and be warmer? That's something people can connect with. And on the economy, Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, spoke here on Monday. What's her plan to sort the economy out? Her plan, it's fair to say, is relatively vague, and that's quite typical for oppositions because you don't generally set out a full plan of spending and taxes and how they balance out until an election is kind of due. She pledged to reinstate the 45p top rate of tax, which is what you would expect, even though there was supposedly a bit of debate about that. But other tax cuts which trusters introduce are going to stay. So they're not going to reinstate the 1p cut to income tax. They're not going to reinstate the national insurance rise. And, you know, the political arguments are quite compelling because you don't want to go into an uh, election with the Conservatives saying Labour are the party of higher tax. And the trickiest thing for this is that Labour have got big ambitions for public services. A big part of Starmer's speech of was we will make public services work. But if you're committed to cutting taxes, it's quite hard to get that to pay. And some of Rachel Reeves' lesser speech, but more her broadcast interviews, were quite vague about how it would uh, happen. And one of the, I think probably the most important part of Starmer's speech, which was quite low-key, was him warning people that this is not going to be easy. I would love to stand here and say Labour will fix everything. But the damage they've done to our finances and our public services means this time the rescue will be harder than ever. 
And that's something people need to get, that things are quite tricky. Public services have been run down since 2010. And if you're committed to tax cuts, then it's not easy to square the circles. And that's going to be a big task in the next couple of years. So he was trying to come across as being pragmatic. Who would you say he was trying to appeal to? You know, really taking his speech as a whole and maybe taking into account Rachel Reeves's speech as well. Who were they trying to appeal to? Who were they trying to win back? I mean, with all political speeches, there's two audiences. There's the people in the room who you want to enthuse and get standing on their feet and cheering, and then to go back to the local areas and want to go out and kind of canvass and stuff like that. Because, I mean, there is a lot of people, uh, Labour people, are making the point that the next general uh, election, a big part of it is going to be the kind of ground game, as they call it, and they really need councillors and volunteers to be willing to go out and fight and think that they're going to win. But obviously, the much bigger audience is the TV cameras and people watching. And they're trying to present Labour again as this fiscally responsible party, which Tony Blair very successfully did, um, and which, to an extent, given what's happened in the last week with you know, the money markets, is slightly easier for them. But again, that's something they really feel they need to do. There definitely has been a sense that the left of the party are being marginalised under Keir Starmer's leadership. What's the strategy here? What has that meant for MPs on the left of the party? To be honest, it's reasonably harmonious in that obviously Jeremy Corbyn is still suspended for the party, so he's not even a Labour MP at the moment. I mean, one of the weird things is that it's seen almost as this battle between a left and right. But, you know, there is this sense that the Parliamentary Labour Party and even a lot of the shadow ministers are basically centre-left, even Starmer himself. There's lots of kind of, you know, mini battles going on. But I think if there is a worry amongst some MPs is that Starmer has and his team have very much won the battle against the left. And yet they're still trying to crush them even more, and that's creating a little bit of resentment amongst some. So some MPs, if you talk to, you basically say, look, enough. You know, we finished him off, we don't need to make a point. He's a leader, no-one's about to challenge him, just kind of leave it. And one controversy for the party recently has been about whether it's appropriate for Labour frontbench MPs to stand at picket lines... I noticed that Angela Rayner, the deputy, mentioned in her speech this week that she supports the right to strike. Decent work, fair pay, the foundations of a family life. Conference, so long as I have breath in my body, I will defend those rights and including the right to strike. What do you think that was about? It's a slightly strange one in the sense that this didn't particularly come up. There was a demonstration uh, outside the conference centre by uh, Liverpool dockers who were on strike. And it's a bit of a weird one because it seems to be a fight that Starmer's inner circle have picked, which no-one else really cares about, in the sense that their instruction was, if you're a shadow cabinet member or if you're a shadow minister, then do not join a picket line. Their argument, which I guess makes sense, is we want to be a government and and a government cannot take sides because it's between the employers and the employees and they need to, you know, make a deal. But at the same time, that's kind of forgetting the very, very strong history of the Labour Party and the unions. You know, unions are literally part of the party. Coming up, Labour are leading in the opinion polls. Have they proven they could win the next election?
A YouGov poll that came out this week suggested that Labour are regaining the public's trust. They've got a 17% lead over the Conservatives in terms of the approval ratings now. You've seen Labour leaders here basking in this sense of confidence that they haven't had for several years. Why do you think that is? Has Keir Starmer finally shown that he's the person to win the next general election? I mean, that's the $64,000 question. It's one that, you know, slightly boringly, only voters can make their minds up on. If you speak to Labour MPs and ask them outright, do you think you're going to win the next election? Then they almost all say, you know, on balance, yes, I think we will. But they all immediately then say, but there's a lot of work to do. It's partly just the kind of tedious stuff of getting volunteers out locally. But also they say that that there has to be this big idea to sell to them. But they're also making the point that the actual electoral numbers are really tough. It would be a massive turnaround if Labour went from 2019 to outright winning the next general election. The swing would be huge. And a lot of the issue is things like the Red Wall, because the loss of these northern and midlands, mainly working-class towns, is something that didn't just happen in 2019. 2019 kind of sealed the deal in terms of partly Brexit, partly Jeremy Corbyn. But it had happened probably from 2005, 2010 onwards. This connection between Labour and these working-class non-city voters had dissipated over time. You know, if you look at lot of seats, the majorities have gone down and down and down and down. And it's quite hard to rebuild. And, you know, talking to some... MPs who campaign in those areas, they say it's tough. A lot of them will say, you know, I don't like the Tories, but they're not necessarily at the point of saying I'm back to Labour because a lot of them have gone through the transition of Labour to UKIP or Brexit Party or and then onto the Tories. So it's not necessarily a straightforward route back. And the other thing too is that in terms of polling, the party has been here before. They were consistently ahead of the polls before the election in 2015. And then the voters decided they didn't think Ed Miliband and his vision was what they wanted. So there is this residual worry that it might be the same thing again. Well, Peter, your reporting is far from over. You're going to be at the Conservative Party conference next week. How effective do you think, looking back on this conference, how effective have Labour been in putting pressure on Liz Truss ahead of that conference to present a vision of how she's going to give the public confidence in the current government? I think Team Starmer will be satisfied. Um, They'll see it as job done, that they've got through it without any major gaffes, at least not related to the leadership. And, And it's this kind of ratchet process that they're adding on to the pressure already there from the financial markets, from voters for the polling, but also from Conservative MPs. And, you know... I think there is an argument that much as a lot of the MPs here have been looking out to the outside world, to the financial markets and to what the Tories are doing, inside the Tory conference centre, it's going to be much more inward focused. They're going to be thinking, yeah, Labour did fine and it's a worry, but they're good. a lot of the MPs are going to be thinking, you know, A, why have we elected these people? And B, what are we going to do now? I mean, some of them are very openly making plans for what they're going to do as a future job. You know, it's at that stage of the cycle. It's at that kind of death spiral. So I think they're going to be, they're going to have an eye on Labour and thinking, well, you know, he did fine. It's still not this complete existential threat. This isn't Blair in 1996 because there was this compelling vision there, which people understood. And to be fair, Kistama has another year or potentially two years to get that, and it's an incremental process. But 
you know, List Trust is going to be looking over her shoulder at her colleagues more rather than, you know, looking towards Liverpool at Labour. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Peter Walker. If you want more from the Labour conference, and why wouldn't you, have a listen to Politics Weekly UK, which is out tomorrow. John Harris will be giving you the full roundup with guests including the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Natalie Katena and sound designed by Axel Kukutier. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.